James chapter 2. James chapter 2, as we can look and uh, continue to study through the book of James, we're in type chapter 2 tonight. We'll read verse 1 to start with, and then uh, we'll uh, go through the first 13 verses or so, so you keep your Bibles open and uh, continue to walk with us as we walk through uh, James. The theme of James, or the theme that I feel like is the theme of James is really genuine faith, what real genuine faith uh, looks like and acts like, and tonight we'll see, uh, as we do just about every week, that genuine faith acts differently than just regular life. Uh, a person who walks in faith walks differently, lives differently, thinks differently, values things differently than people who do not have genuine faith in Jesus. And tonight we're going to look at how we treat each other, and, uh, which is a huge deal, big deal in, the, in our church family. So look, if you will, in verse 1, and um, sometimes we think that we're the first generation to encounter some of these sins of the church, but we're not. This all started way back in the garden, and the early church had some of the same struggles as we do. So look at James chapter 2, verse 1. James, the brother of Jesus, or half-brother of Jesus, if you'd rather say it that way. James writes, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Uh, let me look at it, the New Living Translation. New Living Translation says it this way. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? I recently read a story of a Christian leader who said when he was uh, 27 years old, he was um, doing some doctoral work in the New Testament and seminary, things like that. And uh, one of the leaders of his denomination, I don't know what denomination it was, but one of the leaders of his denomination invited him to a big gathering of pastors. And so uh, he felt kind of cool to be invited to this gathering of pastors, you know. And so uh, one night after the, after the meeting was over, the, one of the denominational leaders invited about 50 of the of, uh, you know, hand-picked guys he wanted to come to a particular room in the hotel and uh, to meet for, for further discussion. And so this guy was there, 27 years old, and he was there. And he said it really made him a little uncomfortable. He was young, something of an introvert. He wasn't a shake hand and, you know, kind of a, you know, glad flat backs kind of a guy. And so he said he watched around. Some of the hotel staff was there serving people and um, they were a little shorthanded. Nobody was serving drinks. It was kind of a self-serve kind of a thing. And so he thought, well, I'll just do the drinks. And that felt more comfortable pouring drinks and handing them out than he did kind of working the room. And so he was pouring drinks and one of the um, leaders of the denomination came by and he you know, I would, you know, what do you want to drink? And he told him, so he handed him, tried to engage him in conversation. And when he did, he said he got that dismissive look of, you're the help, you're not part of this. <laughs> and just kind of walked off. And he said, only people who've probably been, uh, you know, waiters and waitresses, worked in the service industry kind of understand that kind of look. But he said, I, I understood it. And so after a little bit, they, um, they said, all right, it's time to get together. We're going to have some discussion. So they sat down, you know, everybody sat in a circle and there was too many people. So they had to do two circles. And it just so happened that he was sitting behind this guy that he had tried earlier to engage in conversation. And so they had a question on the floor to discuss, and the leader said, uh, why don't we turn to our resident New Testament specialist to help us with that question? Well, he, the 27-year-old, was that person. And so um, they asked him to stand and address the question. So he did, and he said when he stood up, and the guy in front of him turned around and looked and saw that this wasn't the help. <laughs> this was the New Testament specialist. He said, you can see in his face, 
how embarrassed he was. <laughs> Just like, oh man, I got busted right here, you know. And so uh, he, he taught, the meeting went on. And afterwards, afterwards, he came up to this guy and uh, they were big buddy buddies now and never mentioned Never brought up the earlier conversation. Never brought up the dismissive, the dismissive look that I didn't have time for you a while ago. But all of a sudden, now you're somebody that can help me. You're a resource for me. I can talk to you about New Testament passages. You're somebody I can call to help my sermons. You know, all of a sudden, now it's a, it's a whole different thing. And he said, you know, in his mind, obviously, a New Testament specialist was much more important than somebody that was on the hotel staff to fix drinks. And that's the sin that James is addressing in James chapter 2. The sin of partiality or the sin of favoritism. It's treating people differently based on their outward looks, based on what we think that really based on what we think they can do for us. And we may not do it the way that that guy did. We may um, show favoritism or partiality on people or toward people who are, who are like us or people who can help us, or people who can benefit us, or people who are, we admire. We may show favoritism toward wealthy people. We may actually uh, be prejudiced against wealthy people. It can get, think and work both ways. We may um, show prejudice toward people who aren't from here. Well, they aren't from around here. Or, or, or don't have our same hobbies or things like that. But here's the thing. Somebody that looks different or, or acts different or is different, we're not to treat people differently based on how they look outwardly or what they can do for us. That's really the kind of the big idea here. The, see, the general theme of James chapter 2, the first 13 verses, is that favoritism Showing parts, treating people differently because of how much money they have or how connected they are or where they're from or their race or their background or whatever. That is contradictory to the gospel. It's contradictory to God's ways. God treats everybody the same. Everybody gets the offer of salvation. Everybody can get as close to Jesus as they possibly can. Everybody's welcome into the inner circle uh, based on faith and obedience. And so it's contradictory to treat people differently based on how they appear or really how they might be able to benefit us. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that like Jesus? One of the things we like about Jesus is a friend of who? Sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He spent his time with outcasts. He spent his time with people who maybe weren't really accepted in the society of that day. And that's what we love about him, his unconditional love. And if we love that about Jesus, then it should be true of us. We should be willing to do the same kinds of things. And it's an individual thing and it's a church thing. Does everybody experience love from me and from our church, from you and from our church? I was listening to a guy named David Brooks. David uh, grew up Jewish and uh, was a newspaper columnist in New York, became a Christian as an adult. He was already pretty famous as a New York columnist. And he said one of the things that, made him feel a little bit weird is that when he started going to churches that um, he got treated a lot differently uh, by people who knew who he was than most people who visited churches because he was something of a celebrity. And so even though he was very young in his faith, didn't know a whole lot about scripture, didn't know a whole lot about the Bible, they treated him like some kind of celebrity. And he said, it's really a thing in the Christian church that we kind of have our own celebrities 
They might be preachers, they might be authors, they might be singers, they might be comedians, whatever they are. But he said it, it really is kind of an odd thing that we sort of, and in his mind and what he said is it's, we've kind of moved from an idea of we admire people who have integrity and we admire people who have responsibility. We, we admire people who love those who aren't like him. We admire people uh, that are what he called saints, good people, honest, uh, God-fearing, God-loving people. And we've moved from that to celebrities. And we wear the shirts with their pictures on them. And we buy, and it's nothing wrong with admiring people. Nothing wrong with buying people's music, listening to people talk and all that kind of stuff. But listen, just because somebody's famous doesn't mean they're any closer to God than your grandmother is. <laughs> doesn't mean they're any closer to God than the guy that just got out of jail is. The guy that just got out of jail may be closer to God than any of us because he knows how much he really needs God. Now, when he got put in jail, he may not have been as close to God, right? Because that's why I ended up in jail. But we, you know, we're not here to try to judge each other's walk with Christ. We're here to share with each other and then to encourage each other and to be authentic and true Jesus followers. Uh, God does not build his church mainly with the talented or the rich or the famous or the well-connected. God builds his church with faithful people who love him and live for his glory. Listen, guys, faithful, I mean, famous people come and go. People with a lot of connections come and go. People with a lot of money come and go. That's, you know, that sometimes people have the idea, boy, if we had some better Bible teachers or people with some more money or some people with more talent, man, this church could really go. No, no, no. God's got all the power, right? <laughs> we need faithful people. That's the, God's always said it's required of a minister. And by that minister there, the word is a steward. And the idea is every Christian was required of every Christian that he be found what? Faithful. Faithful. That's what he's talking about. So James is saying we are to be the kind of people who do not show favoritism. David Platt wrote it this way. And David used to pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. So David knows a little bit about, he's pastoring uh, in the north now, but he used to pastor in Alabama, so he knows a little bit about what he talks about. He says, I'm convinced the deep, dark secret of our religious subculture in the southern United States is that we want Christianity and we want church on our terms, according to our preferences, aligning with our lifestyles. We are people happy to go to church just so long as nothing in our lives has to change. We're a people glad to be Christians just so long as we can define Christianity according to what accommodates us. The real problem, or the only problem is that in order for the religion of Christianity to be authentic, true, and actually acceptable before God, we have to let him define what it looks like. Now, James chapter 1, he talked about genuine religion. If you remember this from last week, authentic Christianity, authentic followers of Jesus. And James gave us three marks, three marks of authentic Christianity and of authentic Jesus follower. And those three, these aren't the only three, but the three that James gave us was, first of all, what? Control of the tongue, that we guard our tongue, we're able to control the tongue. Secondly, that we care for the widows and orphans. We care for those in need. And thirdly, that we're not spotted, we live unspotted from the world. We're not worldly. And what happens in James chapter 2 is he takes worldliness and he applies it. He's still talking about worldliness now, okay? And in James chapter 2, he said, now this is the way that you, not, you need not to be worldly, okay? This is the way that worldliness doesn't need to infect our lives. Because, you see, we think of worldliness a lot of times, I do, entertainment, 
you know, morality, you know, we may be worldly that way, maybe in the way we dress, maybe in the way we talk, maybe in our sexual lives, it may be in the places we go, it may be in materialism, it may be living for what others think, it may be indulging in sinful pleasures, but James also says, you know, worldliness is treating people differently according to how they can benefit us or according to how we think think about them, and so, or, or, or depending on how much money that they might have, uh, it's easy to say, boy, man, we sure would be nice to have those people in our church. Just think if they could tithe. <laughs> Just think if they would sing. Just think if they would teach. Just think if they would do that. But see, especially for lost people, guys, we have way more to offer a lost person than they have to offer us. They might offer us talent. They may can offer us money. Man, we have everlasting relationship with Christ. We should never be jealous of something that the world has. We really should live with the kind of joy and the kind of peace and the kind of love and acceptance in a family that the world is jealous of what we have. We should never be jealous of what they have. Man, they might have more money or something like that. We're going to walk on streets of gold one day. <laughs> Your needs are already well taken care of for all all of eternity. And so let's kind of dig into it today. Let's kind of dig into it. How as a church can we uh, be reminded, how can we live out that we treat everybody the same? We don't show favoritism. We don't show partiality and treat people differently, but uh, depending on how much money they have or how much they might can benefit us. First of all, first of all, we need to be gripped or captivated by God's glory. One of the ways that helps us to, to live not showing partiality, not showing favoritism, is by being gripped by the glory of God, fascinated by who Jesus really is. It's easy to get fascinated by money. It's easy to get fascinated by fame. It's easy to get fascinated by what somebody else owns, or their cars, their clothes, their vacations, all that kind of stuff. But none of that is comparable to God. Hey, man, I could throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. God made a ball that we all live on. <laughs> Man, that person is so beautiful. How about a sunset over the ocean? <laughs> you know, and that person can sing like nobody's business. Wait till you hear, hear the chorus of angels singing in glory, right? It, it's just there's no comparison. When we get fascinated, caught up in, in too much in what somebody else can do or have or looks like, we're forgetting that our Father is way more than any of that. We need to be gripped by the glory of God. Look what James 1 says. We tend to get impressed by the wrong things, don't we? James 2.1, New International Version. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. That's the second time James has mentioned Jesus directly, uh, which is odd to me because it's his brother. I would have name dropped that a little bit more. <laughs> you know, I would have thrown out everyone. I would have thrown that out about every other verse. And by the way, Jesus, who I used to share a room with, <laughs> Jesus and I, you know, we were like this growing up. You know, I was his favorite brother. You know, even if that wasn't true, I might have tried to. Of course, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let it get in the Bible. <laughs> you know, uh, that kind of deal. But you know, you just got, but it's the second time, and he uses that phrase, "Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ." Not many of us say that about our brothers. <laughs> Our sisters, do we? One commentator wrote it this way, because we're not exactly sure how that phrase is to be translated. One commentator wrote, there are some slight differences how to translate the phrase, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the emphasis is on the glory of God being embodied in the person of Christ. That is Christ's splendor, majesty, and supremacy 
over all and above all. And so favoritism, which some of the churches that James is writing to, the sin there is we're not giving honor to the one honor is due. We're giving honor to a human being when the honor needs to be given to God. He is the glorious one. He's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody that gets rich, they can't do that outside of God. Look, if you will, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So somebody brags about how much money they got or prideful about how much money they got. The only reason they have it is God, God made it where they could get it, you know. I mean, think about it this way. None of us pick our birthplace, Right. And people in America who work hard and maybe make a, a lot of money, they can work just that. If they were born in Haiti, they can work just that hard and they're not going to make a lot of money. You could be born in India or somewhere like that and they can work just as, a lot of times people say, well, you know, somebody, they don't have a lot of money or they live in poverty because they don't work hard. Some places that's just not enough because of where you live. So we don't pick where we were born at. That has a lot to do with it. We don't pick with who our family is. We're just born into that. And some people's wealth is inherited. Some people's wealth comes from a family that teaches them how to work hard, teaches them a work ethic, teaches them some ways that they can invest their time and energies that will be uh, uh, money producing. So you, you don't pick your family. And then the skills that we have. Some people are just more talented than others in certain areas. And it's interesting because our society rewards some talents more than it rewards others with wealth, and God doesn't necessarily honor them that way. I mean, think about it. If you can uh, throw or catch a football or throw a baseball or sing really well, uh, our society will honor you with a lot of fame and money. But are those jobs really more important than a police officer? really more important than a fireman? Is it really more important than a mom or a dad? (laughs) And so you can do something really, really well, and our society may not reward you materially or wealthy or with wealth for it, but it's still really well. It's still really important, and it's not something to show favoritism for. We pay professional athletes and celebrities way more than we do police officers and firemen. And I'm not saying that's going to change. It's not. But here's the thing about James. In James's world, see, in our world, you can kind of apply yourself and work hard, maybe get some skills, maybe get some education, and you can kind of move up. In James's day, there was also almost no possibility of upward movement economically. About 8% of James's people in James's day were wealthy. About 2% could climb, and about 90% were going to stay in the economic class they were born into. It's just the way the world was. Wasn't anything they could do about it. Wasn't necessarily right or wrong. That's just how it was. Where you were born was pretty much where you're going to stay. Places like India and some other countries like that still kind of that way and, uh, in today's society. Um, and so we have to remember that all of this comes from God. God put us together. God put us in our families. God put us in our countries. And so we are to love each other with Christ's love, regardless of what we look like on the outside. He's saying you don't honor the wealthy because they're rich in money. You honor Christ because he's rich in glory. Everybody say rich in glory. Yeah. One commentator said that, um, that he and his brothers and sisters were the first generation 
uh, in his family that they knew of to ever go to college. And um, he said, you know, there's something about people treat him differently. And, and this guy a, a te a teaches at a seminary. And he said, I get treated differently when people uh, introduce me as David as they do when they introduce me as Dr. David. He said, when I'm introduced to a people as Dr. David Nioski, then I just get a different reaction than if it's just David. But he said, you know, I'm the same person either way. He said, my grandmother worked as a domestic. In other words, she worked as a maid. My grandfathers all worked as blue-collar workers. None of my family were highly educated, whatever, but, you know, they're just as honorable as I am, if not more. You know, because you attach a title to somebody's name doesn't mean anything. He said, we were able to socially climb when people in James' day couldn't. Look at what James says in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, New International Version. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, oh, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, don't sit over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves to become judges with evil thoughts? Now, that sounds a little different to us because I don't know that we judge people according to their clothes a whole lot, but they did in James's day, in Jesus's day. Only the rich had bought clothes. So you could pretty well tell somebody walked in. All of the 90% the of people had clothes that they made, okay? Some of you grew up in a time when you remember y'all made, you, I can, some of you like me, I can remember my mom and my sister cutting out patterns <laughs> on the kitchen table. Well, and they didn't have, they couldn't go buy you know, expensive fabrics or anything like that. And so if a person walked in with bought clothes, you knew what, they're rich. You know, they got some money. Somebody that did, so that's why he breaks the big idea about, we would say the car they drive, where they work, you know, the house they live in, those kind of things that we would say. And as we've shifted to a celebrity status, we tend to favor those with more than we do those who maybe not have as much monetarily. And James is saying, that's not right. You need to be gripped by God's glory. Secondly, you need to be gripped by God's grace. Gripped by God's grace. You see, when we are in awe of somebody's money, and we forget that we should really be in awe of God's grace. Extended to all of us. It's God's grace that saved us. It's God's grace that sustains us. And it's God's grace that's gonna keep us, right? And no matter how much money you or your friend or your family has, it's not enough to buy your way into heaven, right? It's not enough to curry favor with God. Doesn't mean anything between you and the Lord. So what we really ought to be fascinated by, caught up by, is God's Holy grace. Look at verse, um, verse 5 of James 2. Listen, my brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? I love the way James is kind here. It's a bad sin. I mean, this is a pretty important sin. It's a really big sin that he's dealing with. And he says, listen, dear brothers and sisters, he doesn't say, all right, knock it off, you bunch of goof-offs. <laughs> you bunch of boneheads. What are you 
thinking, you bunch of knuckleheads? How can you act this way? What are you, have you forgotten anything that you've been, I mean, he could have really kind of been hard on him, but I love the pastor's heart that he has here. My dear brothers and sisters, he's been very, very kind and corrected them about this. And he points them to scripture. He's going to point them to scripture here. And the word that James uses for poor there is a word that by the first century, by the end of the first century, it had the connotation, not every time, but it had the connotation that the poor person, this particular Greek word, the poor person was the one who put their trust in God not in material wealth. James is not saying if you're poor, if you don't have the material wealth that other people have, then you're favored by God. He's not saying that. He's saying the person who's poor is likely, maybe more likely than the rich, to look up for help, to know and recognize their need. You see, the poor uh, may not be everybody materially, but we all need to recognize we're poor spiritually, that we all need God. We cannot do it on our own. We, you know, without him, we can do what? Well, we can do nothing without him. And so the issue here is not just the quality of treatment given to the rich. It's the uneven treatment. They get treated really, really well, which is fine. But the poor person isn't. And that's not fine. If you treat everybody the same, that's okay. But the poor person gets shabby treatment while the rich person gets great treatment. And for us, like I said, it may be the person who can sing or who can teach Sunday school or can, you know, teach a class, something like that. Um, these guys can help our church. And so we curry favor with them. And James is saying, that is not the way to live. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? And here's the sentence. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What's he saying? He said, everything we have is given to us. And people say, oh, no, you know, I got there and I worked, man. I, I did it myself. I worked hard, my nose to the grindstone. I, man, I worked, outworked everybody. Well, who gave you the energy to work? Who put you in a family or gave you some kind of teacher that taught you that hard work would pay off one day? You see, all of that is stuff that you've been given. If everything I have is something that somebody gave me, I don't need to brag on me. I need to brag on who? The one who gave it to me, the giver of grace. Look in James 2, 6, the first part of verse 6. He says, but you have dishonored the poor. The word for dishonored there is a word that means insulted. You have mistreated the poor. Proverbs 14, 21, the 11 translation. It is a sin to belittle one's neighbor. Blessed are those who help the poor. Galatians 2, 10, the 11 translation. The only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. You see, if we're gripped by God's grace, we're not gonna look down on anybody. If we realize Somebody had to die a bloody death for my sins. Who am I going to look down on? Who am I going to think I'm better than? The highest price that could ever be paid had to be paid for me to be reconciled, for me to be forgiven. So how am I going to look down on anybody? Anybody I meet is a candidate for grace. Isn't that great news? 
doesn't matter how rich, how poor, or whatever else they are, everybody is a wonderful candidate for God's grace. And what James says, and this may not be as true for us, but what James says in his day is, you know, y'all are trying to, um, you know, earn favor with the rich. And he said, actually, the rich is the one that's putting y'all in trouble. And he'll say it over in chapter 5. Now, as I said, this doesn't happen as much today probably, but look at what it says in chapter 5, and we'll get there and dig into it later. But look what it says. Now, listen, you rich people, weep and wail. That doesn't sound like their favor, does it? Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. That literally it hadn't yet, but all wealth, is that's going to happen to all material wealth, right? Your gold and silver corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, what's what's the big deal? Here it comes, verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Those workers, a lot of them might be the Christians. Uh, The cries of the harvesters, perhaps Christians, have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You see, the insult is even more unbelievable by favoring the rich when they're the ones that were oftentimes taking advantage of the Christian people. They're the ones dragging them to court and getting them in trouble. You see, we are to see everybody through the eyes of God's grace. So we got God's glory. We got God's grace. The third thing is God's guidelines. The third thing that helps us out here is God's, God, God's given us some instructions. God's given us some commandments for us to obey. And if you look at the guidelines, it's very, very clear how we're to treat each other. Look at verse eight. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing Right. And that's quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear, bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And what did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as who? As yourself. And so James, he adds a little bit of bite to it. He adds a little bit of a bite here to this because he says, if you show favoritism, you're a lawbreaker. Favoritism is a sin, and it violates the law of love, and James says it's a pretty big sin. Now, some people say, well, all sins are the same, but they're not. Now, I know you've heard that all your life, that all sins are the same, but that is not a scriptural idea. Now, it's this, all sin is the same in that it's all against God, and it all carries big consequences, but even the psalmist says, Lord, keep me from premeditated sin. See, premeditated sin's worse than a sin that, um, that you didn't really know was a sin. Jesus said it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the people that witnessed his miracles. In other words, the consequence of those sins, of seeing the miracles of Jesus and not trusting in him, is worse than what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's talking about levels of judgment, levels of punishment according to sin here. Now, watch what he says here in James chapter 2. He he compares this kind of sin to adultery and he compares it to murder. He says, you know, if you, if you commit murder, but you don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. 
The law hangs together. If you keep most of the law, but you violate it here, then you violated the whole law and you need forgiveness. And so he, now think about all the sins that James could have compared this to. And he pulls out murder and adultery. Pretty big, isn't it? Murder, he said, if you commit mur murder, but you don't commit adultery, you're still a lawbreaker. And then he comes down to, and y'all are violating one of the biggest laws that there is. I mean, you say, are some commandments more important than others? Yes. When they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't say, they're all equal. He said, the greatest, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second, they didn't ask for two, but he gave them two. But wait, there's more. <laughs> if you order today, no. <laughs> he said, the second one is that you love your neighbor like yourself. These are really, really big deals. You see, we don't want to treat people based on how they dress or their physical appearance or the color of their skin or their ability to sing or teach or where they're from or how educated they are. None of that means, I mean, some people are more qualified to do some things than other people are. If we wanted to start a sports program here and there was somebody, and, I, and there's not, but they, if we wanted to start a sports program and we had somebody here that used to be a professional athlete and they love Jesus and are walking with Jesus, they might be the one to put in charge of the sports program over my wife. <laughs> because she's never played an organized sport in her life, okay? It doesn't mean that that person's better than Laura is. It just means they're more qualified to do that particular ministry than she would. So yeah, some people are more qualified to do certain things, but our value and our worth are all the same and we treat each other all the same. I listened to a guy who said that he was a college pastor in California one year and um, they had this leadership team doing some great mission work and things things like that. And he said it was really an odd mix of people. I had some students from Stanford, uh, student, which, by the way, if, to get into Stanford, you got to be really smart. <laughs> it's one of those schools that you really have to be pretty bright to get into. So these are the um, intellectual guys of the group, or guys and gals of the group. And had some from other colleges, had some who were working. And they had one guy, he said, one guy named Frank, and said, Frank, when you met him, if he said more than five or six sentences, you knew he wasn't a Stanford guy. They said he was, you know, he dropped out of high school, um, didn't go to college, and said he almost, and it's almost like he played that off. He came across as somebody that uh, almost tried to make you think he wasn't that smart, you know. But he said, you know, of all the young people we had in that college group, he said Frank was without a doubt the best leader in the group, best leader in the group. And he said whenever Frank spoke, the students from Stanford listened because Frank knew God and Frank knew how to follow God. Frank had insight. You see, there, there are some things that you only learn by following Jesus. There's some things you only learn with a close relationship with Christ. And even if you can't express it in the best English, hey, if it comes from the heart, it's worth listening to, amen? And so Frank could have easily been dismissed out of hand when he was actually the best leader they had in the whole group. I was reading about a guy who was a reporter for CBS News and he had, he had this thing he wanted to do. And so he went across the country and this was his idea. He had heard about how people don't like to be involved in other people's trouble. Americans don't like to get involved in themselves involved in other people's lives anymore. And he wondered kind of how true that really was. And so what he would do is he, you know, he was dressed up like just a regular guy. 
he would ride his bike to a certain place and uh, park it, ask a couple, ask some, somebody sitting on the side of the road, a couple of one guy at a restaurant or whatever, and say, would you watch my bike for me while I go inside for a few minutes? And uh, what they didn't know was he had a buddy that was recording the videotaping what happened. And uh, so he said, he, he all kind of people, a homeless couple, um, you know, teenagers, um, a security guard, security guard. By the way, he said the security guard watched very disinterestedly as somebody walked, as the guy that he had hired, he drove off in his bicycle. I just watched, watched him drop. Watched him ride. Reminds me when I was in Baton Rouge, uh, the mayor had a meet with some of us pastors one time, and uh, they were talking about the violence in Baton Rouge, and he was kind of encouraging us to, you know, to try to do some things to kind of help out with that. And he had had a ride along. The mayor of Baton Rouge had a ride along with a police officer, and he didn't really want to do it. They wanted him to do it, you know, and so, you know, you really need to see what's going on out here. And so um, he said they, they actually got a call out while he's doing the ride along, which is what he was praying against, right? They got a call out, burglary, that kind of thing. They caught a guy, brought him to the car. They told the mayor, the mayor was about 5'8", weighed about 160 pounds. <laughs> and they told the mayor, watch him while we go. And so they went after the other bad guy. When they come back, the bad guy they caught had left. And they asked the mayor, said, what happened? He said, he ran away. <laughs> said, what'd you do? He said, I watched him. That's <laughs> 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 what you said to do. You said, watch him. He said, the interesting thing was the homeless couple, when the guy came up to get, you know, he had this friend of his rigged up where he was going to come act like he was still on the bike. He said the homeless couple immediately and violently stopped him. That's not yours. That's a friend of ours. He left that bike. He left it here for us uh, to protect. And UK said they really, really did one of the best jobs of anybody. And he talked to him after, told him what he was doing. And they, the homeless couple said, you know, people don't trust us because of what we look like. He said, but we really are trustworthy people. And if you put people in categories by how they look, you're going to miss some great lessons that God has for you. And you may miss some really good friendships that God has for you as well. And as I said, it works the opposite way as well. I read where one pastor talked about uh, his youth pastor. wasn't Holt. <laughs> Holt's way too smart for this, okay? But he said his youth pastor, had, you know, he was really fired up about Jesus and fired up about some things like that. And... And he was a little bit, um, well, he was a little bit. He was critical of some of the wealthier people in the church, uh, critical of the cars they drove, critical of the houses they, they lived in, you know, a little critical of the vacations they took, you know, uh, kind of thing like they ought to be, you know, a little more generous or kind of thing. And his pastor took him aside and he said, um, let me just share something with you. Remember when y'all were thousands of dollars short on the mission trip to Mexico, it looked like y'all wasn't going to go? Those wealthy people you criticize, they're the ones that gave the money. And that ski trip y'all took that was really, you know, kind of extravagant, and y'all were short on that, y'all had some kids that couldn't come up with the money to pay for that, and somebody anonymously donated the money for that, it was those people you criticize. And a lot of your ministry here is funded by those people that you're criticizing. And so, you see, we can do it either way. We can be, we can mistreat the rich because we think, well, they're rich or they got wealth, they got more than us, they're snobby, they don't love God and all that. You can go either way. The idea is not to favor the poor over the rich or the rich over the poor. The idea is we love everybody. James is not against wealth. James is against the church becoming an arena for a display of wealth. 
James is against the church facilities being made in a certain situation and treating people that have more where they're a little bit more comfortable. And maybe even, maybe even, if you donate enough money, we'll name the building after you. I don't think James would have been very comfortable with that. Last of all, last of all, we've got to be gripped by God's glory, captivated by God's grace, live according to God's guidelines. And then we have this group goal. What's our goal? To honor Jesus, not a person, not a, not, not a segment of people, not, not certain people in the congregation. We are to glorify God. Look at James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. Now, how many of us have not broke at least one, <laughs> which puts us all in the same boat? We're all needy. We all need a Savior. We all need Christ. We all need God's grace. Look at James 2, verses 11 through 13. For he who said you shall not commit adultery, this is what I was referencing a while ago, also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he says, if you commit murder but not adultery, you're still a lawbreaker. And he compares, he puts, that, he puts favoritism in the same background here. Whoever that person is that we tend to judge, that person may very well be your brother and sister in Christ. He's somebody or she's somebody that Jesus died for. And so we need to be very, very careful how we treat, how we speak about, you know, the idea, well, they're just a dopehead, they're just a jailbird, you know, they're just whatever. Um, not many times do we say, oh, yeah, he's just a gossip. <laughs> Those sins are bad too, right? <laughs> uh, he's just materialistic. You know, we, we don't call people by their sins. We call people by their Names. We call people by who they are and who they can be in Jesus. Look in James 2.13, New Living Translation. There will be no mercy for those who have not been shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. And so the idea is what? As we have received mercy, let's give mercy out. Let's give mercy to each other because here's the thing. Every one of us needs it. You see, tonight, we may can act a little prideful sometimes. We may can feel pretty good about ourselves. We may can look down on somebody else for their sins. But boy, if any one of us tonight, if all of our sins were put on the screens, run screaming from the church never to come back, right? Yeah, because we don't want everybody to know all of our, I don't want everybody to know all of my sins. How about you? But when somebody gets caught with one of theirs, if we're not careful, we can be pretty harsh against them. The truth is we're all spiritually poor and we need to recognize that we can learn and enrich each other's lives no matter who we are or what background we come from. I heard about, uh, well, I'll close with this. I heard about years ago there was a, a debate team from Harvard that won the uh, national debate tournament, whatever, that is, whatever they do. They, 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 won. they were the national debate champions, Harvard, big time stuff. Uh, there was a um, correctional institute, not too, too from prison, not too far from Harvard. And uh, they, had, um, they had allowed them to take some classes, college classes. You know, one of those things where, you know, they could, they could be taught and take classes and things like that. And they had formed their own debate club. 
And, uh, you know, they're in prison. That's all. They, they worked hard at it, worked really, really hard at their debate. And so they found out that Harvard wasn't too far from where they were. They found out Harvard was the national champion. And so they uh, sent them an invitation to a good-natured debate, <laughs> good-natured competition. And so the folks from Harvard came, and uh, they had their competition uh, with the uh, inmates. And the, um, and the judges said that the inmates had insights that the debate team from Harvard never saw. And so the inmates won the debate. And the folks from Harvard uh, sent them congratulatory letters saying, we're very impressed with how well y'all analyzed the issue, how well you spoke to the issue, and how much we learned from you guys. Now, if you looked at that from the outside, you'd never pick the inmates to beat the Harvard guys, would you? Listen, guys, we all need God's grace. We all need to be captivated by God's glory. And we need to be very, very sure as a church. When we eat together, we greet each other, we have Sunday school, we come in on Sunday morning and see people scattered around the church. We need to be very careful because if somebody comes, here's the thing that, that, that I worry about sometimes. If I come in and somebody's sitting here where Jeff and Mary is, and let's just say, can y'all be the heathens for tonight? <laughs> Are you pretty good at it? Okay. So let's say Jeff and Mary are new, and let's just pretend like um, they're dressed, they're not, but let's pretend like they're dressed a little shabbily. Maybe they, uh, we don't know them where they're from, whatever. Look like maybe they've been with Robert at the jail. <laughs> you know, we're not sure. But, and, uh, but, but, but here's Holt and Danny over here. You know, we know Holt and Danny. They're the youth pastor and youth pastor's wife. And so I come in, and man, me and Holt, you know, we're, hey, buddy, what's up, bud? You all right? You, you, you know, they're there, and I hug Danny's neck, and we're high-fiving all that, and good to see y'all. And, and I walk by, hey, Sylvia, how are you? And I hug Sylvia's neck, you know, and ask Jan how she's doing and I come back by and the thing is I'm a little let's just say I'm a little nervous a little introverted and a little intimidated by these I don't really know what to say to them I don't really know exactly how to greet them real well and so in my mind I'm shy and withdrawn and a little nervous in their minds I've ignored them in their minds I greeted everybody around them but them and there's no way for me to say you make me nervous. <laughs> you know, there's no way for me. You know, they're going to leave. And see, we don't know where they're going to sit. That person who visits, who maybe, um, maybe is afraid that they're going to be judged. Maybe they have come from a tough background. Maybe they haven't always lived a Christian life. Maybe they think somebody knows some of their sins. And they come and they're going to sit by somebody. They're going to sit in some area of the church. Whoever's area they're sitting in, it's your responsibility to make them feel loved and make them feel welcomed and make them feel accepted and to treat them like people we would love to have at Hopewell because they are the kind of people we would love to have at Hopewell. Would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed? Lisa comes to play softly on the piano tonight. And Father, as we bow in prayer, it's so easy to treat people well who treat us well. And to treat people well whom we're comfortable with and we know and we are, uh, hang out together. And Lord, sometimes people who maybe are very, very rich or maybe are very, very poor or maybe come from a different background, um, sometimes we can be a little nervous. And sometimes we can be a little hesitant to reach out when they 
are often the ones who need it the most. And so, Father, help us. Forgive us for being uh, people who are, who are prone to favoritism. We're prone to treat people differently based on our relationship with them or, or what they can do for us. And help us to treat people like you treat people. 